President Joe Biden has raised questions concerning his own mental stability, his own mental health. Not only that, but his physical, overall physical health. Many conspiracy theorists out there have raised the question of whether or not he is actually running the country. Some believe that he is in a fake White House and that others are running the country behind the scenes. Uh, His inability, it seems, to be able to uh, function with his speech from time to time raises many questions among even novice individuals who have no medical degrees. But on the flip side of the coin, those that are supporters of President Biden say that this is not possible, that there's no way that a shadow government could be running our country. Not with the leader of the free world, there's no way possible. But what if I told you that that has, in fact, happened once before in our nation's history, and it wasn't too long ago? What if I told you that we had a president that became so direly ill that his own wife would stand in as president of the United States and the secret would be kept not only from our country, but from Congress and even his own appointed cabinet. Just 100 years ago, that was the case during the Wilson administration. Thomas Woodrow Wilson was an American politician and academic who served as the 28th president of the United States from 1913 to 1921. A member of the Democratic Party, Wilson served as the president of Princeton University and as governor of New Jersey before winning the 1912 presidential election. As president, Wilson changed the nation's economic policies and led the United States into World War I in 1917. He was the leading architect of the League of Nations, and his progressive stance on foreign policy came to be known as Wilsonism. But few realize that for a period of time, President Wilson was in dire condition, incapacitated and unable to perform the duties of president. Congress and the American people had no idea, and even more disturbing was the fact that it was hidden from his own cabinet members. So who was leading the country? Edith Wilson, formerly Edith Bowling Galt, was the second wife of President Woodrow Wilson and served as the First Lady of the United States from 1915 until 1921. She married the widower Wilson in December of 1915 during his first term as president. She was born October the 15th, 1872 in Wytheville, Virginia, to Circuit Court Judge William Holcomb Bowling and his wife, Sarah Sally Spears. Her birthplace, the bowling home, is now a museum located in Wytheville's historic district. Bowling was a descendant of the first settlers to arrive at the Virginia colony. Through her father, she was also a descendant of Matatoka, better known as Pocahontas. Additionally, she was related either by blood or through marriage to Thomas Jefferson, Martha Washington, Letitia Tyler, and the Harrison family. Needless to say, her family was politically connected. In March of 1915, the widow Galt was introduced to recently widowed U.S. President Woodrow Wilson at the White House by Helen Woodrow Bones. 
Bones was the president's first cousin and served as the official White House hostess after the death of Wilson's first wife, Ellen. Wilson took an instant liking to Galt and proposed soon after meeting her. However, rumors that Wilson had cheated on his wife with Galt threatened the burgeoning relationship. Unsubstantiated gossip that Wilson and Galt had murdered the First Lady further troubled the couple. Distressed at the effect such wild speculation could have on the authenticity of the presidency and respectability of his personal reputation, Wilson proposed that Edith Bowling Galt back out of their engagement. Instead, Edith insisted on postponing the wedding until the end of the official year of mourning for Ellen. Wilson would marry Galt on December the 18th of 1915 at her home in Washington, D.C. The wedding would be attended by 40 guests. The groom's pastor, Reverend Dr. James H. Taylor of Central Presbyterian Church, and the bride's Reverend Dr. Herbert Scott Smith of St. Margaret's Episcopal Church in Washington, who performed the wedding jointly. As First Lady during World War I, Edith Bowling Wilson observed gasless Sundays, meatless Mondays, and wheatless Wednesdays to set an example for the federal rationing effort. Similarly, she set sheep to graze on the White House lawn rather than use manpower to mow it, and she also had their wool auctioned off for the benefit of the American Red Cross. Edith Wilson became the first lady, the first first lady, I should say, to traveled to Europe during her term. She would visit Europe with her husband on two separate occasions, 1918 and 1919, to visit troops and to sign the Treaty of Versailles. It was during this time that her presence among the female royalty of Europe helped to cement America's status as a world power and propelled the position of First Lady to an equivalent standing in international politics. Though the new First Lady had sound qualifications for the role of hostess, the social aspect of the new administration was overshadowed by war in Europe and abandoned after the United States formally entered the conflict in 1917. Edith Wilson submerged her own life and her husband's, trying to keep him fit under tremendous strain and accompanying him to Europe when the Allies conferred on terms of peace. When the Wilsons returned to the United States, the honors of the old world gave way to the sober reality that the president would face enormous resistance among Senate Republicans in having his version of the League approved. Exhausted, he nevertheless insisted on crossing the country by train to sell them on the idea. In October 1919, there was little enthusiasm, yet he pushed harder. Then he collapsed from physical exhaustion. Rushed back to the White House, he suffered a massive stroke. Edith found him unconscious on the floor of his bathroom. It was soon apparent to all that Wilson could not fully function. Edith firmly stood, stepped in and began making decisions. Consulting with physicians, she would not even consider making her husband resign and have the vice president take over. It was at this moment that Edith became America's secret president and first woman president, as legend has it. Although the president was paralyzed and unable to carry out the duties of his office, Edith insisted that he must not resign because she believed that losing office would kill him. Edith and the White House inner circle 
hid the severity of Wilson's condition from the media and the public for fear of forced succession. In fact, Rear Admiral Kerry Travers Grayson, Wilson's White House physician and close friend, refused to sign a letter of disability that would have allowed an act of succession to be passed. This was the single most important decision she made during Wilson's illness, and from it followed all the rest, including her concealment of the severity of his disability from the cabinet and the press, her determination that almost no one be admitted to the sick room, along with her screening of the papers and issues that would be brought to his attention, and her assumption of the role of secretary reporting the president's decisions to government officials. Out of fear for President, uh, President, the president's mental health, Wilson was not informed of the severity of his condition. Medical records indicate that Wilson was paralyzed on his left side and partially blind in his right eye. Additionally, he had also suffered from several emotional attacks due to his medical trauma. These combined ailments made it impossible for Wilson to carry out his elected responsibilities in the public eye. Until January 1920, Wilson had almost no contact with anyone outside his circle of family and doctors. He didn't even meet with his cabinet until April of 1920. Edith Wilson never intended to absurd her husband's power nor to become the first woman president. As she told Wilson's doctor, I'm not thinking of the country now, I'm thinking of my husband. But in seeking to protect the man she loved, she did in fact assume a major political role. In excluding visitors and deciding which issues should be presented to him, she made political decisions without even meaning to do so. And yet, even though Miss Wilson took over many routine duties and details of the government, she did not initiate programs or make major decisions, and she did not try to control the executive branch. She selected matters for her husband's attention and let everything else go to the heads of departments or remain in abeyance. In her 1939 autobiography, My Memoir, Miss Wilson wrote, So began my stewardship. I studied every paper sent from the different secretaries or senators, and tried to digest and present in tabloid form the things that, despite my vigilance, had to go to the president. I myself never made a single decision regarding the disposition of public affairs. The only decision that was mine was what was important and what was not, and the very important decision of when to present matters to my husband. He asked thousands of questions and insisted upon knowing everything, particularly about the Treaty of Versailles. A further insight into the extent and reasons for the First Lady's level of control of access to her stricken husband is revealed in an Edith Wilson quote from the chaotic days of World War I. She said, and I quote, People descended upon the White House until their coming and going was like the rise and fall of the tides. To achieve Anything admits such distractions call for the most rigid rationing of time. Cabinet members were not allowed to talk to the president without Edith's approval. She intercepted and screened all material intended for Woodrow's review or approval. 
if she de- deemed uh, them important enough, Edith would take them into her husband's bedroom. Whether the decisions coming from the bedroom had been made by the president or Edith was not known at the time. While she admittedly took over many day-to-day presidential duties, Edith contended she never initiated any programs, nor made major decisions, sign or veto legislation, or otherwise try to control the executive branch through the issuance of executive orders. Not everybody was happy with the First Lady's administration. One Republican senator bitterly called her the presidentress, who had fulfilled the dream of the suffragettes by changing her title from first lady to acting first man. In my memoir, Miss Wilson strongly contended that she had assumed her pseudo-presidential role at the recommendation of the president's doctors. After studying the proceedings of the Wilson administration over the years, historians have concluded that Edith Wilson's role during her president's illness went beyond mere stewardship. Instead, she essentially served as President of the United States until Woodrow Wilson's second term concluded in March of 1921. Miss Wilson was unquestionably a remarkable woman, yet she was not up to the task of administering the nation single-handedly, especially in secret while also caring for an ill husband, nor could anyone else in her shoes have done so. Historian William Hazelgrove has documented the discovery of important correspondence from this period that simply went unopened, found decades later in government files. Numerous appointive offices remained vacant indefinitely. Yet by deferring to her cabinet officers and taking a handful of high-priority issues, Miss Wilson managed to keep the ship of state afloat. What rendered this possible was the institutional momentum of the executive branch. In the absence of direct guidance from the White House, officials filled the void with their own best judgment, and to be quite honest, they muddled through. A few Republican critics of the president, such as Senator Albert Fall of New Mexico, rallied against petticoat government. But the president's Democratic allies largely circled the wagons, ignoring this his uh, obvious impairment, while adversaries in his own party, including Vice President Thomas Marshall, remained conspicuously silent. Unfortunately, in the absence of authoritative White House leadership, institutional forces could only keep the government machine well-oiled for so long. Eventually, Miss Wilson's method of temporizing and triage proved to be inadequate. The Wilson administration slowly drifted towards chaos, unable to address a worsening recession and race riots at home, much less be able to confront crises, including the Russian Civil War abroad. What finally saved the nation from the president's incapacity was not Miss Wilson, although she did her best. In fact, it was the inauguration of her husband's successor, Warren Harding, in 1921. You see, Edith Wilson would retire with former President Wilson to home in Washington, D.C., where she would care for him until his death in 1924. The same year, she headed the Women's National Democratic Club's Board of Governors. Three years later, as we mentioned, Woodrow Wilson would die. It would be at around 11.15 on Sunday, February the 3rd of 1924. The next day, the New York Times reported that the former president had uttered his last full sentence. And that was on Friday, February the 1st. 
when he said, I am a broken piece of machinery. When the machinery is broken, I am ready. And that, on Saturday, February 2nd, he spoke his last word. Edith. Miss Wilson lived on to ride in President Kennedy's inaugural parade. She would die later on in 1961 on December 28th, the anniversary of her famous husband's birth. Edith Wilson was America's secret president in a time when a nation really didn't need to lose its leader. Until next time, I'll see you then. Thank you for listening to the Deuce Conrad Show on Spotify Podcast. In case you didn't know, you can also hear this podcast on Google Podcast and Apple Podcast and most podcast platforms across the web. For more information about tonight's show, you can also visit www.deuceconradshow.com. Visit show notes for more details.